Hello everyone, this is Dan Barton. I'm back with another installment of Next Gen Waterfronts. We have a, uh, we have a really special guest today, Emily Mazzucarati. Uh, Emily is the uh, co-founder of a company called 427. It's a Berkeley-based company and it's been doing some really interesting stuff over the past few years. And for those of us who have a great interest in, uh, in I guess, fairly, uh, fairly, uh, or accurately, I guess, accurately pricing coastal real estate, since coastal issues are kind of our beat here, um, uh, a lot of what Emily is doing will make that um, will make that more consistent across uh, across properties, and uh, and put the true value of um, of climate change into property values. Um, but more than that, I, I think uh, her company, 427, uh, has, a, has a terrific mission that is uh, fundamental to, uh, to what they're trying to do. Uh, with that, Emily, let me uh, uh, ask if you want to have anything to say to introduce yourself. Uh, did I get that right? Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm actually the sole founder of 427. Oh, um, so great. I will claim that title all to myself. And yes, 427, we're a data analytics firm or an environmental fintech, if you will. We're focused on modeling and helping investors understand the physical impacts of climate change. And is, is there an underlying mission or is it as simple as that? Not that that's no, simple. we 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 are mission driven. I guess you don't get into the business of of climate change if you don't have a strong mission uh, orientation. And our mission is to help catalyze climate adaptation and resilience investment. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the idea is we provide good information, good data, analytics to help. Uh, business policymakers integrate climate science into policy and business decisions. Oh, okay, uh, is is uh, how would how would you describe your products, the analytical consulting products of four two seven? Yeah, so let me explain a little bit. We work with a set of models called global climate models, uh, known as, as GCMs for the insiders. And those are models that are developed by research institutions, government, academics around the world that model how the Earth's systems work. Um, the water cycle that you learn in primary school and <laughs> clouds and the oceans and heat and vapor and greenhouse gas, all of these models, um, they're very, very complex, um, heavy duty models that forecast how the entire climatic system of the Earth is gonna change over the decades and centuries to come. Those are models that are not easy to use for um, mortals like you and I. And there's about 40 of them. Um, they each have their own characteristics and specialties and strength and, and limitations. Um, but this is what we have that can help us understand how climate change is going to manifest in the places where we live and build and invest. And so this is the data that we extract from those models, process it, apply different methodologies so that at the end of the day, what we produce are a set of indicators that are easy to understand, risk level, low, medium, high, scores from a scale of zero to 100 to capture risk that help our clients 
understand what the exposure of any given site or an asset that they might be invested in, what that exposure is, and therefore be able to price the risk in as they see fit. So the, the scale or the uh, product uh, that comes out of the model is, is, a, is on a score of 1 to 100 or 0 to 100? And, so and what, low, medium, high, or tell me a little more about that. Sure. So what the models, um, the global climate models uh, project are temperature, precipitation. So if you look at the data, the raw data from the model, you may find forecast for heat in, you know, the 25 by 25 kilometer where your house is located and what the temperature might be on January 23rd, 2049 and on March 18, 20, right? So it's daily, it's going very far out, it's very granular. Um, and what we do is we take this data, we look at trends, we look at extremes, we look at statistical analysis, what is the top five hottest day, how frequently are we going to have temperature in the future that historically where heat waves and in the future might become a lot more common, right? And then we score and we provide this relative ranking for our clients where instead of them having to sift through those massive amount, <laughs> terabytes and terabytes of data, they can look at a site and say, oh, wow, this has, you know, high exposure to heat stress. They can dig in a little, you know, a little deeper into our product and see that maybe it's going to be um, the hottest days are going to be uh, at a temperature of 104 instead of 98 historically, and maybe there's yeah. So that's that's the type of things that we do. Well, that's 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 pretty cool. What what are the um, are there like uh, a, a certain number or a certain cat set of categories? You know, flooding, uh, temperature. Are there some particular outcomes, or are they variable depending on the client request? Mm -hmm. Great question. No, there's there's a set of uh, hazards or risks that we look at systematically and they might come green, right? They might come as low risk or no risk. But so what we look at is heat stress, of course, um, water stress. So the lack of water or drought. We look at flooding risk, both inland and coastal. So sea level rise. Um, and then we look at hurricanes and cyclones, and um, we're just about to release a new set of indicators on wildfire risk. That's pretty. That that last one's pretty interesting because I know, um, you know, going back to the uh, the late seventies, the uh, Forest Service was uh, looking at the the, the national um, forest or both the national parks and the U.S. Forest Service properties on a cellular level and looking at the type of growth and, and ascertaining whether there was a fire risk based on whatever was growing in a particular cell. So you're really, you're really taking it to a new level there. Um, yeah, we, you know, we wouldn't be able to do analysis as detailed or specialized as someone who is in the field looking at, you know, specific trees, for example, might be. But what we can do is very big picture, big data, do this analysis for any point on the globe and look at what's the land use, what kind of vegetation do we have, how much hotter is this area going to get, how much higher is it going to get. And then there's, um, again, methodologies developed by scientists to estimate how that then creates a higher wildfire potential. So we're not able to predict where a storm or wildfire might happen because there's 
it's a different phenomenon. There's a different trigger, right? A wildfire needs something, <laughs> a spark. Um, but we can say that an area is going to have a higher potential. And, and we do see a strong correlation between areas with higher wildfire potentials and areas where we've seen uh, very intense wildfires lately. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like the difference is that you're not providing forecast, you're providing odds. Um, it, and it depends a little bit on the on the hazards, right? For some of these, we provide we're able to identify areas that have high exposure, uh, quantify the increase in the the sort of the the potential. For others like heat, we have a pretty good sense, thanks to uh, the work of climate scientists, of how much hotter is going to get. The the uncertainty is quite limited. Um, for something like precipitation or for storms, there's a lot more uncertainty because of just the way clouds form and <laughs> and how storms really form. So there's a lot more uncertainty in the models, but we're still able to give strong signals in terms of direction. That's, and that's, then, that's pretty yeah. cool because working with different data sets, moving through different models, um, you're able to know where the where the frailties and where the strengths are in the models and in the data that you put in. Yeah, I, I would say that's really one of the things we've focused on as a as a company is helping make sense. There's so much good science out there, and it's a very topical topic right now. How much do we care about science, right? But there's a lot of really good science, and it's not easy to access for um, folks who are not trained as scientists in that discipline. And there is a need for the world to really understand what those models are saying so that those risks can be factored and priced in, as you as you mentioned. Um, so we're really focused on staying as true as we can to the science, but being translators, right? Being bridge builders so that folks can access the science in a way that makes sense for them. Do, do you think that um, do you think that the uh, the the challenge of trying to understand climate change is one of the reasons or the complexity of climate change and the many moving pieces, if you will. Do you think that's one of the reasons why climate change hasn't been accepted by a lot of people? Or do you think it's more, more, more willful? I guess? <laughs> uh, that's no, I, I think there's two, there's two big dynamics at play. I would say the most important dynamic is the fact that to address climate change, to prevent further climate change, because it's already happening, um, we need to change our energy systems in a way that um, will disadvantage certain uh, industries and economic sectors that are not happy with that. And so there has been, it's been demonstrated that there's been heavy lobbying and uh, deliberate effort to make the science more confusing than it really was and more uncertain than it really is um, in order to avoid having to confront the hard decisions that we will need to confront one day of how do we reform our energy systems. And then um, the fact that the science was uh, uncertain, there is still a lot of uncertainty and we can talk about that, but it's really well established. I mean, climate models uh, are, are much better at predicting the future than economic models, if you look at the, uh, at the track record. Um, so the uncertainty remains, um, but scientists have been hesitant uh, and, and didn't feel like it was necessarily their job to um, derive real-world conclusion from the science that they were seeing, right? And so this is where 
things got a little bit muddled for a way for a while. Yeah, I think what you're doing is is actually uh, is actually a wonderful magic because uh, because of you know the point you just made that um, that scientists were in a lot of cases not really wanting to, but also in a lot of cases were just not capable. It wasn't in their toolbox, their skill set to to take that last mile and and explain uh, to people what's what's going on. And and this is probably something you've had to do with your clients because your clients probably have a real interest in 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 useful um, information that they can put into their decision making and and so getting from from the science to the kind of you know dashboard you were describing where you can compare different properties where you can compare things and make decisions is 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 really critical i would guess Absolutely. And, and you just used the word, the, the term, the last mile, and that's an expression I've used a lot, right? Government and publicly funded research and science create the core infrastructure that we need to understand the climate. And then we all need, we, we, we all need to go to our own houses, right? And, and each path is going to be different. And so that last mile between the core data, the core science and the users and what the user needs to do with this data and how it needs to be presented to them, what granularity is relevant, what time frame is relevant, how are they, at what point of the day are they going to need to look at this data and what are they going to do with it? Are they going to turn around, show them to their boss? Is it going to go into a model? Is it going to go into a negotiation, right? Understanding that piece and then mapping so that we extract the right data, put it in the right form, deliver it at the right time and the right place is, is exactly what we do. Yeah, and I, I liked your term uh, translation too, um, uh, you know, because it really is sort of translating uh, something that uh, algorithms and, and, and data and such that, that by and large, uh, most people don't know how to use and, and, and bringing it to them in, in, a, in a form that can help them and frankly, that they want, and it seems and seems they need. Um, you, you know, I was actually thinking about it. in many cases. You're the first company that they've that uh, some people who need this kind of information become aware of, and they've hired you to help them. Um, how how do you explain to clients what you can do, and and how do they build trust in you? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I founded the company back in 2012, and I can tell you the first couple of years, I got a lot of blank stares and a lot of why are you doing this and why would I want this data anyway? Um, and we've come a very, very long way since then um, for the better and for the worst. I mean, for the better, because the level of awareness and engagement around the fact that climate change is a material risk that needs to be embedded into decision-making process processes. Um, that's that's done um, for the worst because it's it happened because we've been through so much in the past few years in terms of extreme weather events and weather-related disasters. Um, we've learned the hard way. Um, but nowadays, and, and it's been like that for a while now, the phone rings um, and it's, you know, this big Wall Street bank or that other Wall Street bank and they want climate data and they want to integrate it into every transaction, every due diligence uh, for mortgage, for real estate investment, um, for a number of operations that they conduct. So the world has really changed from that standpoint. 
Well, and, and I would guess in a lot of cases, you know, even the ones who, who got the message or who got the understanding first, they're looking for even a finer grain of answer from you. And, you know, one that fits, you know, perfectly in the cell of their spreadsheet. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I think you may be, or you will be under pressure to really provide a level of metrics, um, that will constantly challenge you as you update your models in the, in the years ahead. Um, you know, I, I, I have an analogy to, or in my mind, I'm thinking that you're similar in some ways to a company, Esri, which provides demographic data. Uh, and, uh, and I've watched Esri and how they, um, frankly, the user interface with Esri change and, and, and grow and make become more simple. Um, although in some cases, even today, there are some maddening complexities to it that uh, I don't mm -hmm. get. Uh, but uh, but you know that that'll that'll always be the case. But as a long time observer, it's been it's been it's been helpful to to see how they have had to improve. T tell us about you know who uses your analysis, and and what kinds of decisions have they do they use it to use? And given that I think you're just still rising in the trajectory of 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 who uses your stuff, who do you who do you think could use it but doesn't know it yet? or doesn't realize it yet? All good questions. Right now, we are focused on the financial sector at large. So that includes investors as well as banks. Um, in the past, we have done more work with governments. We've also done work and still do some work with corporates. Um, I, I can tell you a little more about each of these, but at the end of the day, we got to a point where to do what we were doing well, we needed to focus on a few so-called use cases, on a few type of users, so that we could do that well, rather than try to do it for everything, be, be everything for everyone, right? And um, we've done some really interesting work in the in the past, um, working with uh, local government and state government in California in particular. Uh, but we found that this type of work could also be served by the ESRI of the world or by engineering firms. And so we focused on what was our main differentiator, which was the ability to look at a lot of different locations in a really short amount of time. So think about if you're a large real estate investor or maybe a pension plan that has a large real estate, a bank with a big mortgage portfolio across the country or even across the world, you can upload a spreadsheet with street addresses for all of these locations and you will get the full scores and risk assessment for each of the sites in real time. And so that's what we do. That's really unique. That's, that's not what a government needs, right? It's very different. A local government is going to need a very detailed analysis of flood risk for that one bridge that's so critical to their infrastructure. So there are many, many different ways to use and consume climate data. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting uh, situation because I, I, I know somebody uh, uh, here in Chicago who I've uh, spoken to in the past on this podcast uh, 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 she has quite a large portfolio, and um, and I, I believe she may even be one of your clients. I was uh, going to say, this sounds yeah. like someone I know really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've known this individual off and on for, I'll say, 30 years, um, and uh, our paths have crossed more in recent years. But, um, but, but this, but she has a portfolio of properties, and and with this portfolio of properties, you. 
when you have a portfolio of anything, uh, risk assessment uh, is 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 your life. You're always trying to figure out what's gonna what's gonna happen, and it, it continues through properties because today the risk assessment is whether or not people will, in the COVID nineteen era, be able to pay their rent. So there are different you know kinds of risks, and it follows all the way through the ownership uh, or the management of property and. And she's able to essentially give you a list of addresses. You're able to uh, analyze for her the risk associated with each of these addresses. And to the extent that climate change risk is 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 part of her decision making process, uh, she can set boundaries and say, well, let's let's get rid of you know this twenty percent of property, and here look at these other properties we're considering, and give us a risk assessment of that and. You know the ones that pass our or cross our risk thresholds will keep or will pers- or will purchase and and use to replace the ones we've removed. So I I, I think that's kind of an interesting um, kind of dynamic that 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 is at once beautiful because it it gives a, a whole layer of of information and it implicitly says that the ones that she's discarding are going to be of lower value, but it does in a way become a kind of an acceptance of climate change. It becomes, I'm not going to, I wouldn't go so far as to say complicit in climate change, but climate change is now something that we can control for, at least in terms of value. Is, is am, I mean, obviously there are different ways to read a situation, but am I going too far there? I, I don't know that I would go all the way there. Let me go back first to something you said about the sort of if I see a high risk, then I'm going to divest from that property. I think what we're seeing is more nuanced behavior in that we're seeing investors wanting to make sure that if they see a higher risk on the property, maybe they just want a higher return, or maybe they will want to make sure that they have a balance in their portfolio so their insurance premiums don't go up too far, or maybe they will do extra due diligence on how the local government is preparing and adapting to those anticipated impacts. Or maybe they will do more due diligence with the property manager to understand what flood preventions might be in place or how good, how efficient and powerful the AC system is, right? Depending on the hazard that you find. So there's a whole host of behaviors and responses that can be put in place before one would have to just ditch the property altogether. And that's really what we encourage, right? We're not going back to our mission. We're not in the business of saying, ooh, this is bad, run away. We're in the business of saying there is some risk here and you need to invest. And as an investor, you you have a responsibility to um, protect your <laughs> your investment, but also you can be a positive force for the for the neighborhood and for the community if you are smart about those issues. So there's there's a strong uh, resp- social responsibility component as well. Well, that that's that's a that's a good way to look at it because what you're saying, if if I may um, ask you if I'm understanding you, uh, is is that you're providing a bundle of categorical risks, and 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 a number of these risks can be dealt with. Uh, and can be reduced through various actions. And, and it may be that if you have a flood risk at a property, but that property happens to be an extremely successful uh, property for so many other reasons, maybe it's location, uh, maybe the tenants or something like that, that maybe there's a way that you can address that flood risk by basically having a place where the water can go. 
and exactly. or or maybe you know like if you're in a coastal situation um, maybe there are some some simple ways to physically strengthen the property uh, or to uh, or to make changes to the property in such a way that you can I don't know maybe uh, maybe handle the storm surge um, uh, other than just putting a v-shaped uh, uh, wall up that just diverts it to your neighbors uh, yes it, please it, don't it, do that <laughs> yeah don't do that yeah well yeah, 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 no. uh, but, but but it's important and and it happens but but to your point right about are we complicit or accepting climate change well we're acknowledging the reality which is climate change is happening and we're looking at the science and we're seeing that even with strong policy which oh by the way we're not doing right now even with strong policy, we are locked in a fair amount of climate change and a lot of impacts. So it's just a reality that we need to adapt and that we would rather people acknowledge and start working on adaptation and even ideally adapt in a way that is mindful and socially responsible. That's that's all going to be better than burying our heads in the sand and saying, oh, maybe it'll go away, right? Well, that, that's actually, you know, an interesting point about, you know, stressing uh, adapting because... You know, I, I, if you look at, um, you know, the public sector land and the logistics planners, you know, who probably love this kind of creative knowledge that, that you're, you're, you guys are building, a, uh, it, you know, from, from your perspective, the question would be, do you encourage them to, um, uh, to, to, to work with architects and planners and others who can, you know, or, or even um, other scientists uh, who can uh, ameliorate the risk in some way? Um, and, and it actually makes me wonder, I mean, do you have like a list of, of, of architects and planners who are very good at this as problem solvers that you could then refer to clients? Or is that something where, where you could actually do a value add a proposition of, of adding that as a skill set that you can mm-hmm. offer your clients or, or is what you're, the core of what you're doing so, you know, amazingly, um, complicated and, and, and in constant need of tending that. The idea of expanding what you offer is is too much. <laughs> Very good question. We've um, we've gone back and forth on this uh, many times over the year, and we have landed in uh, really focusing on providing really really good data to as many. Um, people, as many use cases, as many sectors as possible within the financial sector, but not trying to become something that we're not. We're not engineers, we're not architects. There are very talented firms out there doing this. We've worked with some over the years where um, we can do formal referrals, but we, um, we, we, we know they're there and that's where we send our clients. And our clients have asked many times um, if we could help. The, the other thing um, that has not come up earlier here, but we received an investment from uh, Moody's Corporation back about a year ago. So we're an affiliate of Moody's. And so we fit squarely into the broader mission um, of Moody's, which is supporting better decision, bringing clarity, transparency to financial markets, to capital markets. And Moody's and we are not in the business of then trying to influence how people respond to that information. In a way to be to provide really good information, you need to be a neutral agent as well. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast 
The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Yeah, that's a that's a really uh, I'm sure it's a it's a great position to be in because it actually answers a lot of a lot of questions ahead as to you know whether we can or should do something. Um, on on the other hand, it it does um, uh, it. it it, it, it can, I would guess, be tricky with how far you can go in your advice, because your your advice um, or your your findings. Um, uh, I guess I'm I'm uh, thinking. You know, you're not. It, it's not. You don't have to be too lawyerly, but you have to. You can only give them data and uh, and and say this is what this data means, um, and. I'm actually thinking that a lot of your clients, when they receive the data that you give them, um, might currently look at it and say, oh, gosh, we knew we needed this, but now what do we do with what, with it mm-hmm. when we get it? Um, so it, 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 I, can, I can see where, you, where, where that sort of becomes a, uh, almost a moat that you can't cross. But on the other hand, um, you, you must have the urge sometimes to, uh, to, to, to build that bridge, uh, to, to be sure that people can take what you have and use it, uh, more, um, uh, more for, for their business, uh, almost strikes me that there ought to be a business relationship that you might have with, a with some, um, business consulting firms who could then help action, uh, take, bring action from, from that, uh, from that data. Exactly. And and that's a healthy ecosystem from my perspective is not every consulting firms need to become an expert in climate science, nor every environmental engineering firm. It's better for those to do what they do well, you know, do it really well, know their clients, understand what are the different engineering or business or financial responses to this set of risks. And we can do what we do well, which is crunching a lot of data and making it easy to understand and access for those people. And so we have a number of relationships with with those very providers, right? Business consulting firms, uh, engineering firms, the folks who do maybe environmental risk assessments and due diligence before uh, investments in real estate. They're, you know, they're they're not in the business of trying to figure out how global climate models work. It doesn't make sense. It's uh, it's much more efficient for them to just grab the data, 
and and we've worked with those firms over the years to make sure that the indicators and the metrics that we provide are what they need to do their work and then they can provide good advice for their clients and and we're seeing a lot of those consulting firms and engineering firms develop entire practices and a lot of expertise on resilience on best practices to then respond to those risks yeah, and and it, it does seem to to follow the course of humanity which you know, like in the last 100, 150 years, uh, we've we've gone to increased levels of specialization, um, and uh, and and the the people who are most successful are those who who learn how to be the muscles between the bones. Um, the people who know how to how to use information and make it move beyond, or how to how to take a special the result of a specialization and uh, move it to the next ones, and and so on. Um, you know, just uh, just thinking about the data that drives your models, um, where where do you get the data that you need? Um, is there some are there some types or categories of data that you're missing, and and if so, how how could it be created or who should be creating this? Hmm. Broadly speaking, we use maybe three type of of data sets. One, of course, is climate models, climate data. I've talked about that. Another type is historical weather data. So those are observations of what we have experienced in terms of temperature, precipitation, humidity in the past. And that helps us understand, um, again, what the future is, but also how we've responded. How different will the future be from the past? And that's a critical piece of climate change. Risk and adaptation is not so much that past a certain threshold of rain or temperature, everything breaks loose, but rather how different is the future from the conditions we've experienced in the past and, and the conditions that our infrastructure are, are built to withstand. And then the third type of data that we use increasingly is geospatial imagery. And that gives us information on a broad range of things, including elevation, which is of course crucial to measure uh, flood risk, it includes uh, vegetation and land use, which uh, is also important for floods as well as for wildfires. Um, it includes all kind of information that then feeds into and helps us be more precise and have more context on what's going on on the ground, literally, um, and and better assess the risks. Yeah, that would I can I can even see you know like on a functional level. Uh, impervious covering an area um, might change over time as it develops, exactly. and you've got to keep up with that some way. So, so physical changes um, through your geospatial mapping, I'm sure, uh, um, must be a must be a fascinating the, how how pho photography or uh, photographic evidence is is then turned into into a kind of a data that can go into a model um, that. Uh, uh, that that must that must be wonderfully uh, creative on on the part of your uh, on the part of your the people that make and drive your models. Um, do you uh, uh, can can public health consequences and responses to them be layered into your analyses? You know, flooding, for example, may give rise to disease vectors, uh, mosquitoes. Flooding can take sewage to places where it shouldn't go. Um, is 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 that something that is that a direction of your work, or is that is that is that another is that another garden uh, for someone else to tend? Yes. Um, <laughs> to which part? Um, yeah. We have done quite a bit of. Work it's okay. On I like the word yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we have done quite a bit of work on health in the in the past. I mentioned we've done work for for local governments and the state of California in particular, as well as other states, and that was all work that was related to uh, public health. Um, so the type of work that where we can leverage our uh, our data processing capabilities and our expertise is exactly what I was describing. Um, we've done work on uh, extreme heat and public health, and so we've looked at how past heat waves in California were driving um, a rise in emergency visits at the hospital and a rise of certain illnesses that are related to heat and a rise in mortality related to heat. And so we've been able to determine at what temperature we start seeing health impacts uh, at the very granular level in California in this case, so uh, going all the way down to the to the census track. And then we looked at forward-looking climate data, um, how more frequent those heat waves would be, how much hotter it would get. And that's allowed us to derive uh, some estimates on what kind of impacts we might see in terms of public health. And all this data is publicly available, calheat.org, C-A-L dash heat.org. Um, that data is, is for public health professionals, for planners, for local governments to understand those those hazards. We've also done work on flaws. As you were mentioning, people don't necessarily think of the impact of health um, on health uh, of floods, but there's there's a lot. And the city of San Francisco did some really interesting work and we helped them uh, visualize that. So there's a so-called a story map, if you, since you like Esri, a, a, a website where you can navigate different data points to see the overlay of floods with different um, metrics related to health hazards. And, and there's more examples. There's another work. Uh, we've done a little bit of work, not quite as granular, but looking at heat and health uh, for the U.S. at large. And that's also available. It's all on our website for 27mt.com. We have not done as much of this work in, in recent years because we were more focused on um, hazards that affect more directly buildings and financial assets. But I think what we're seeing in the past three to six months, I will say, is that both health and social equity matters are very relevant for the financial systems and for markets. And so we're, we're looking at ways to bring back into our data, our models, our indicators, those dimensions related to heat, related to uh, social equity and racial equity into the work that we do for the financial sector as well. Yeah, I can, I can sort of sense in a way too that as a pioneer in, in the use of this kind of data, uh, uh, to to basically help others make uh, relevant or make more relevant decisions, um, you 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 almost uh, pass by as as you develop what you do um, a few branches uh, that you say, boy, we'd like to do that, but but maybe uh, maybe we have to focus more on the ones that we know that uh, that really are represent our future more. Um, and and I think the public health uh, data and the use of it that you've had that you've done. Is really interesting because I think at a certain point we're going to see a convergence where, where you're doing top-down environment or you have done top-down environmental analyses of, of health and the consequences of, uh, of, of, of climate on health. Uh, but um, as more, at least of first-world countries, tend to have people wearing Apple watches that are, or other devices that will collect data on their 
individual health. Uh, you know, you're going to have the granular data of individuals coming up, and the top-down data coming down. And 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 I think it, you know, is is going to be really interesting for our species to to begin to understand, um, you know. Uh, uh, the 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 individual in the environment, and that I think is where you're going to come into what you just finished referencing, which is the uh, the social equity issues, because people who will have that kind of personalized health stream of data coming off their bodies, um, they will they will be more examined and be mm-hmm. uh, uh, than than the people that don't have that, because they will represent the nexus of top down data and uh, and the granularity of individual data going up so it'll, it'll be kind of interesting and and that point applies beyond health actually the the stream right the internet of things <laughs> the yeah. magic, magic iot um if you think of what we're seeing with smart infrastructure with smart meters where there is monitoring in real time of what's happening in the grid what's happening in water pipes we are getting data that is going to be really helpful to inform adaptation. We're not currently leveraging this type of data sets. I think this is something that could be explored over time when they become a little more prevalent. But but to your point, this is going to be a critical way to better capture what's going on in on the ground in real time. Yeah, it's going I, to help better respond to those to those risks. Yeah, I I I think that I hadn't even thought of the IoT data data that's going to be coursing through our our computers because it's uh um you know just just that whole notion of uh, what do we do with this data and uh, how can we um how can we uh, it, it'll be just like all of the climate change data that you've been dealing with it'll be a matter of all right we get this data this is an important situation uh, with consequences that we'd like to add risk to or at least to understand the risk of um, and so what do we do with it so we really are in the age of big data. Um, and 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 what to do with what we can now collect, you know. I, my my one of my doctors uh, years ago said, uh, seeing this coming, he's he said, you know, I I just I just don't know what we're going to do with all of that information because you know now we're going to have constant profiles on somebody's blood sugar, um, and uh, and and you know we've we've never been that fine grained before. We've always just you know had intermittent measurements and said, all right, this is what you should be. This is the way you should be medicated. So medicating our our planet and uh, and and our population is uh, is going to is going to have such a more fine grained response now because we'll have so much more data. And and it also speaks to that difference between data and intelligence, right? Or insights. There's a lot of data. There's more and more data, and there is a lot of value add in creating the data. But there's also a lot of value add in being the folks who help interpret the data and bring it from its raw state into a more tamed, more well-behaved and more insightful state. Yeah, I I think you're right. Well, that's kind of where you are. And, and, uh, and, you know, it it is the the story we were just talking about in the last few minutes is, uh, is the story that, uh, that the next uh, 427 is going to have to have to address. Um, maybe 428. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> In the, the next life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 428, 19, uh, or 20, I guess. 427. Um, you know, just uh, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, uh, uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to 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 sort of not look ourselves in the mirror. And pandemics obviously can be scarier than climate change. Um, recent because they're so individually uh, relevant. Um, 
recent governmental responses have varied so much. Um, and there are so many different scenarios. I mean, whether we're in New Zealand or whether we're in Sweden, for example, uh, way more than we could have imagined. Um, what what do you think we can really learn from this uh, experiment in reality? Um, yeah, lots, uh, lots of lessons. Yes. Lesson number one, science really matters. We need to listen to scientists. And when we don't, it hurts a lot. To me, that's really the biggest lesson from the pandemic. And we're seeing it play out as as we speak, right, in parts of the United States. Um, and and it's a challenge because we are now in a state where there's a lot of doubts cast on the the value and the use of listening to scientists, right? And and the reality is when we don't, we expose ourselves to um, a lot higher risk and a lot more impacts. Um, lesson number two, preparedness matters. And we, we've seen it with pandemic where if we had had all the things that we said we would have, the number of ventilators and the number of masks that we were supposed to have in the national stockpile and all those good things, we would have been better positioned to respond to the crisis. And so investing in preparedness, investing in adaptation is going to be really important to mitigate the impacts um, of what we know is to come. Yeah, and and it it and also there's the, the matter of, of adjacencies too. Um, uh, uh, Jacinda Aldean has been so successful in in New Zealand in part because of the isolation of New Zealand, and um, and and they didn't need all the PPE that everyone else needed because um, because they responded quickly and uh, and were able to basically you know get complete societal buy-in to a set of you know scientifically uh, recommended uh, actions, um, and uh, and it's only. Only had they gotten to the next step of starting to have a spread, would they need to have the preparedness? But but it's almost a case of where you would want to have the preparedness in place in case you got to that point. And if you were successful at keeping the need away, then that's not a matter for thinking that there was waste, but a matter for celebration that 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 the um, that the uh, that the societal response was so successful that now you have that that stock of uh, that stash of materials for, for the next issue, you know, when it comes exactly. to, so that, yeah, there's no, my, it's not a, no recrimination. No, what, what we say is uh, resilience is the story of something that never happened, right? When you're successful, you've got nothing to show because nothing happened. And, and that's true of preparedness, right? But the, I'll add one last lesson from my standpoint of, of the recent months is we need to stretch our imagination when we think about how future risk might manifest and, and how we will respond to them. If we had told me or anybody a year ago that we would go through what we've just gone through in the past three months, that we would see airports, cities, entire countries shut down pretty much overnight, that would have sounded like science fiction and, and not very plausible one at that. Um, and, and it's the same when we look at the future for climate change, when we say one day we might not be using oil anymore, right? And then people laugh and say that's completely unreasonable. And, <laughs> and yet this is how we need to think. We need to think what happens if 
sea level rise goes increases a lot faster than the mm, sort of baseline consensus projections right now, and we see a meter, two meters in our lifetime, then what happens? And how are we going to respond? What happens to New York, to Miami, <laughs> to all of those cities? Um, so the more we can think about these and confront some of those really difficult prospects, the more we can prepare adequately and the more we can hope that we respond a little better should any of this come to bear. Well, it, it, it's interesting because uh, there is, uh, you're, you're making there, I think, the, uh, the, the very interesting analogy between COVID-19 and climate change. Um, and, uh, and the change, climate change uh, is happening slowly, sort of on cat's feet and just sort of creeping in. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, we know what's going to happen if it arrives. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, something we knew was coming, but still is unexpected. And that would be how we look at pandemics. And, uh, you know, we, we all knew that there was a possibility. Heavens knows we've had enough movies and other things that talk about, in fact, I think there was a movie called Pandemic. But, but, but if <laughs> you, but if, board game too. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, the, 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 the twist of it is, is, is actually evident in, in, uh, in the Asian countries of, um, uh, of Singapore and, and uh, uh, South Korea and uh, Hong Kong and other places, uh, because they learned from SARS, um, which was a far more potent um, you know, they took about 17% or 11 to 17% of the people who were infected. So that's why they were so good and so willing to do it. So the question is, is, is how do we build, um, how do we get lessons from climate change that will make us be more willing to make the changes? And in, in, in an interesting way, you, you, we didn't say this when you were talking at the beginning of our conversation, but, but there really, I think, has been a, a sudden shift in awareness, appreciation, and understanding that climate change is happening. And in a curious sort of way, pulling out of the Paris Accords sort of made us all take sides. And, uh, and let me stop. So we, we, am I going down a rabbit hole or is there something here? No, I, I was going to concur. I think I, for a minute, I thought the world would forget about climate change because of the pandemic. And what we've seen is the exact opposite, which is the realization that all the Cassandras out there were right. <laughs> and that all those, you know, science fiction scenarios about a pandemic were coming to play in probably worse ways than than folks had anticipated. And it makes everybody look twice again at climate prepare climate risk preparedness and climate scenarios and and think oh oh i actually need to pay attention and, and for, you may have heard the 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 term black swans to uh, refer to those unforeseen unexpected events with a big impact but what we've seen is also some pushback saying, well, this pandemic is no black swan and, and climate change is not a black swan. I mean, this pandemic is a great rhino, right? It's a highly probable neglected threat that has an enormous impact. And uh, just a few months ago, before the pandemic started, there was a report by um, a set of central banks in Europe that called climate change a green swan. We know it's happening. We don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly how bad, but we know it's coming and we need to plan for it. So there, there are a lot of similarities from that standpoint, even if the materialization uh, of the risk, of course, is very different between a pandemic and between climate change. 
I, and, and actually, it's, it's you know, just a, I suppose if we were to break apart the, the, the realities of human life, we'd, we'd also find things like, well, there's already a pandemic in America, a health pandemic of obesity or something, you know, that, that the more things we if we if we become more introspective and begin to apply science to 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 things that concern us, um, there are so many, um, so many different things that we could uh, that we could begin to solve and, and mitigate or at least understand better. Um, you, you, you know, I, I, I just uh, this seems a little prosaic after what we we're just talking about, but, um, but, but one of the concerns that I would I would have going forward is in the public sector, um, there w- there is less money um, uh, today as a result of the pandemic, um, and that's for a number of reasons. One is they spent to save on the uh, uh, and they spent at high prices to to to, to save their populations, uh, but also they will have less revenue coming in. Is 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 that going to affect? Do you think um, uh, public sector uh, endeavors to address climate change? Because now we might not be able to afford it. You know, the old notion of police and fire and education are at the top of the list, and anything else is 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 is, is extraneous. We're actually already starting to see that. We're seeing some projects being slowed down or put on hold or pushed back because of the lack of funding. Uh, and the fact that resources have been spent on COVID-19 for good reasons, but therefore they're not here anymore. And of course, there is a long-term impact of the current crisis because of the economic crisis, the impact on taxes and on government revenues and, and the ability to invest in uh, those those back burner issues in a way um, like infrastructure. We're also seeing in a state like California, the governor coming out and saying, well, we've got to walk and chew gum at the same time because those wildfires are coming. And as you said, fires remains on top of the list when you think about public spending. It's as immediate and, and burning, if I may, of a threat as the pandemic for some parts of California, for sure. And so then it's the schools that are getting hit, right? So <laughs> so there will be long-term impacts because of those really difficult trade-offs. When the schools are not receiving the funding, of course, that has other long-term social and economic implications. So the, that, the, um, the economic crisis and the impact of the pandemic are absolutely going to lead to some challenges and, and climate is affected. Yeah, and, and I, do, I do think one thing, and I'm not sure, I, I suppose it in, in, the, in the main it becomes a positive, but I do think wider societal acceptance of the role of technology in our life. Um, is is one of the is one of the outcomes. Um, you know, it was sort of a hidden outcome after after 9/11, hidden in that um, uh, you know the way you got your tickets and the way you boarded a plane changed completely before and after 9/11. And uh, you know, many people don't print out their boarding passes anymore, and and the whole plane experience from from decision to purchase to to uh, to to, sh- to showing your uh, digital boarding pass all happens at a digital level now and um, and and medicine uh, with uh, telemedicine now rising in importance and 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 I'm not even going to go to the obvious one of zoom uh, you know there are so there are so many things that have changed our life that we're actually thinking of changing the shape of our landscape where we live and where we work yeah we're we're going to see long term impacts from those changes certainly uh, tying that back to climate change I think we're going to see some long-term impacts on travel patterns, on remote work, on transit and commuting. And so there, 
there is probably going to be a little bit of an impact. It's nowhere near what we need to actually get climate change under control. And we also know from history that after economic crisis and other types of shocks to the system, typically emissions rebound and get right back where they were within a few months. So I'm not too hopeful, but I do think we're going to see changes. There's going to be a little bit of impact in terms of emissions and then a big impact in terms of, of society, in terms of urban planning. What does that mean for downtown restaurants and retails if nobody's working from downtown anymore? And what does that mean for those properties and, and for the economic and, and future of the city in a way? Um, is, is there anything that we didn't cover that you, you think would be important uh, for us to understand about 427 or your work today or, or what it might be tomorrow? Mm-hmm. We've covered a lot of ground, <laughs> um, but it's it's good to see the growing interest in understanding how climate change will impact how we do business, how we build, how we develop, how we think about cities, and um, and good data is what we need to make sure that we make the best possible decisions. Well, thank thank you very much. I've been talking to Emily uh, Mazakarati. Um, and uh, you are with 427, the founder of 427, uh, a Berkeley-based uh, company, if I have that right. And, uh, and how, would, right. how would somebody get in touch with you or better understand what 427 uh, does or what, can, what it can do for them? Well, speaking of technology, we have a website. Uh, it's 427mt.com, M as in Mary, T as in Tom. And we have a lot of white papers, research reports, blogs. Um, we keep up with a lot of what's going on in the space. So it's a, it's a good resource for people. That's great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And, um, and uh, um, good luck with all that uh, happens in the years ahead with 427. You're doing some great work. Thank you. Dan, thank you so much. It was my pleasure.